entering the Freedom Hut. President Trump's feud with Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib continues. We'll talk about the latest there. Plus, how the Democrat media is trying to use race as a way of attacking Trump going into 2020. The way they're forming that narrative. And is wokeness now finally too much, even for some very prominent lib journos? We've got that and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. We know Donald Trump would love nothing more than to use this issue to pit Muslims and Jewish Americans against each other. The Muslim community and the Jewish community are being othered and made into the boogeyman by this administration. Oh my, welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. There you had Ilhan Omar giving her version of what's going on here. Now, she's the one who, as you will recall, wanted to go meet with a very anti-Israeli, anti-Semitic group. And the Israeli government was like, you know what? We don't think we're going to have you do that. Thanks. Now she's trying to make it sound like Trump is the one that's being uh, unfair to her. Or, or Trump is being disrespectful to the Jewish community in this country by having or by trying to turn them on the Muslim community Yes, Trump, right, whose son-in-law and, and daughter Ivanka are both Orthodox Jews. Yes, Trump is the one who's not not Ilhan Omar. She's not the one that we should be concerned about here. I'm glad to see that President Trump is not backing down on this. And, and here's why I think there's been such a, a focus. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of these issues coming up here later in the show, because uh, there's a lot to get to today, as there always is. But we just went through a week of being not this week, but the week before uh, we were constantly lectured by the media about how Donald Trump is the worst, most evil white nationalist racist ever because some some lunatic mass murderer uh, killed people in El Paso. And that was being put directly at, at the feet of Donald Trump by politicians, by Democrats, by people in the media. And they're saying that it's because Trump uses uh, rhetoric that otherizes and, and Trump has a, a racial or a, a, a bigoted view of, of the world. And, and now here we are going into week two over this controversy about two uh, Muslim American members of Congress who pretty clearly hate the state of Israel. And, and you'd have to ask why. What is it about Israel that upsets Ilhan Omar so much. I mean, Rashida Tlaib has family in the West Bank, so we understand there's a bit more of a connection. Why does Ilhan Omar hate Israel so much? It's a question I think we should be able to ask. What is it about? What, what could I? I'm trying to put my finger on something. There's a lot of countries in the world, right? Almost 200 or so. What is it about Israel that rubs Ilhan Omar the wrong way such that she thinks that, that it should be the subject of a crippling economic warfare through the BDS campaign. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, there's there's probably something about Israel just a little different than a lot of other countries. I'm not really sure, but we'll have to think about what that might be. Hmm. I think you're all putting your finger on it, though. I think you've already figured it out. Look, it is 
good that the president does not back down to this leftism. Part of this is pushed on by a Democratic Party that is desperate to mobilize the far left base and also a Democratic Party that I think is increasingly afraid of just how radical it has become, meaning that the the old uh, the old guard, the establishment, the Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer wing of the Democratic Party no longer really feels like it's in control. And that's why Trump pushing back on this and highlighting this. I mean, this is a fight that I think he's perfectly willing to have because I think he believes it's important. It's important that we know what these Democrats really stand for. It's important that the American people hear time and again the excuses, the soft peddling, the downplaying of what Omar and Tlaib have said by people in the media, by the Democrat left media who view this so-called squad as really the future of the Democratic Party. That's what this is all about. These aren't just a few members of Congress. This is that you are getting a glimpse of what the Democrat Party will be going forward. Far left, socialist, social justice and identity politics obsessed, and yes, anti-Israeli. Because far leftists on college campuses, all over the world, anywhere, hate Israel. The far left tends to just just despise Israel, and there's reasons we could discuss another time why that is. This is why Trump blasting the squad for its anti-Semitism, I think, is such an important important point of uh, separation between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party now. He's just saying, look, guys, this is what they're doing. Listen to what they're saying. Play 17. And you should see the horrible things that Tlaib has said about Israel and AOC plus three. That's what I call it. AOC. Just take AOC plus three. And you should see the things that the four of them have said about Israel over the last couple of years. I mean, Omar is a disaster for Jewish people. I can't imagine if she has any Jewish people in her district that they could possibly vote for. But what Omar has said what Talib has said. Isn't it fascinating that you have the Democrats routinely saying that people of all, all kinds of minorities cannot vote for Donald Trump because he's such a racist, is what they always say. And when Trump says, well, here you have somebody who is clearly anti-Semitic, who clearly has a problem, speaking of Ilhan Omar specifically, with Jewish people, and, oh, my gosh, how could Trump? He's, he's otherizing Ilhan Omar by saying this. How could he do this? This is a tactic that Democrats use all the time. And in the case of Ilhan Omar, I think it's entirely justified because she clearly has a problem with, with Israel and with the Jewish people. I mean, that's based on what she said in the past and doubling down on this now. And, you know, she's a, she's a congressman for, for Minnesota, for Minnesota What is she doing going to meet with the BDS group in the West Bank anyway? We really think about this. There's nothing more important to do than this. This is so high up on the agenda that this has become an issue. But it does show you who the Democrats really are. And then Trump also said that he on Rashida Tlaib. And we've talked about the Ilhan Omar phenomenon here. Rashida Tlaib. This is what Trump had to say. Play 18. And then yesterday I noticed for the first time Tlaib with the tears. 
all of a sudden, she starts with tears, tears. And I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't buy it for a second, because I've seen her in a very vicious mood at campaign rallies, my campaign rallies, before she was a congresswoman. I said, who is that? And I saw a woman that was violent and vicious and out of control. And all of a sudden, I see this person who's crying because she can't see a grandmother. She can see a grandmother. They gave her permission to see a grandmother, but she grandstanded and she didn't want to do it. So that's a decision of Israel. That's not a, a lot of people are saying that was my decision. That's a decision of, of Israel. And Trump is referring here to a video that you may, you may or may not have seen. I don't think we've actually played it for you on the show, but where Rashida Tlaib is really dragged out of a, a Trump event for being a heckler and making noise and screaming like a crazy person. You know, she was trying to disrupt the event and there's video of it and she does not does not come across very well. But these are the Democrats that, you know, when was the last time you heard about a Democrat member of Congress who was not part of the squad? Now, now this is at least at some level because they want to get the left wing base fired up. And with especially with the younger left wing activists out there in the Democratic Party, they would much rather get behind uh, female minority Muslim members of Congress than you know some sort of boring white privileged male congressman from you know Missouri or something. I mean, they you know, they, they they like the identity politics component here, and so they're much more excited. Uh, about these candidates as leaders in the party. But what does this say about the Democratic Party going forward? And now you see also, we're going to talk more about the candidates, by the way. You see how the the candidate situation is shaking out so far. And you have all these different all these different options for Democrats. And we've got the debates coming up. You have all these options. And yet there's still a consolidation behind Biden that's not breaking. You, you know what this is? The I think that the phrase has started to make a comeback now that, you know, you fall in love in the primary and you fall in line in the general election, which is a very simplistic way of saying, you know, find your candidate that vote for whoever you want in the primary and see where the chips fall. But then in the general election, you got to make sure your party wins. That's and political pundits say this stuff all the time. And, you know, you'll hear a lot of this, you know, a lot of punditry just comes down to stating the obvious, but saying it with a tremendous amount of a plum and, you know, a lot of vigor uh, saying things like, oh, well, uh, whoever has the most votes at the end of this is definitely going to be the victor. I mean, this is what pundits end up doing. But you look at the primary so far, you look at who the Democrats, uh, who the Democrats have come forward to support. And it's really a three person race. And Biden is at the front of this thing. And no one believes that Biden is all that inspiring, including Jill Biden, who you know was out there saying, "Okay, well, look, you know, I know you don't think that Joe Biden's like lighting the world on fire here with his incredible intellect and everything else, but you know, you got to just sort of vote for whoever's not Trump that can win." Play twelve. I know that not all of you are committed to my husband, um, and I respect that. Your candidate might be better on, I don't know, health care than Joe is. But you've got to look at who's going to win this election. And maybe you have to swallow a little bit and say, okay, I sort of personally like so-and-so better. But 
your bottom line has to be that we have to be Trump. That's what they're going to be saying. Any Anything to be Trump. Joe Biden to me is such a replay of the 2016 election, except this time around, you've already had four years of a, you will have had four years of a successful Trump presidency. So the good news for us is that this is a trajectory that leads to Trump winning four more years in office. Uh, the bad news is that I think Democrats may wake up from this at some point and realize that they're going to they're going to have to try a whole new tact. And this is where we're going to get into. The, you're seeing the early signs of it, but I, I think that this is going to be an election that is uglier than anything we've ever seen before. You know, the, the last election, they really did believe that Hillary was going to walk away with the whole thing no matter what. So there was as much as they hated Trump, there was a a laughter, a, a derision. A, oh, he's such a clown. He's orange. Look at his hair, the whole thing. Uh, this time around, they're bitter. The left is going to be angry about this. The squads mentality, you know, AOC and Ilhan Omar and all of them, where they're just nasty to the political opposition, vicious to the political opposition. That's going to be the tone of this. And I also think, and this is why there's probably some hesitation among Democrats to get thorough, to get solidly behind uh, Biden and Bernie specifically, because the two super old white dudes, that's what Biden and Bernie, that's what they are, super old white dudes. Uh, the central narrative, and we'll return to this in, in just a moment, the central narrative the Democrats are going to be running with in 2020, from what we've seen so far, because they've got nothing on the economy, is going to be Trump is a racist and this is a referendum on white nationalism. That's what you're going to hear. Going into 2020, it's a referendum on white nationalism. Anyone who votes for Trump is voting for white nationalism. This is what, and the media will be all in on this, as crazy as that may sound right now, because how could they say something so reckless and so unfair and so untrue? They're going to say it the same way that they said that Trump was a traitor for Russia. These people have no scruples. They have no decency. The leftist media doesn't care how insane they sound. If they think that it will work, they will go with the storyline. And this time around, the storyline is going to be one of the most aggressive and, and vicious racial politics you can imagine. They're going to say it like a, it's, a, it's a referendum on white nationalism and what that will do to the country I and mean, how that will start to tear at some of the very uh, most sacred fabric of this nation, what holds us together as Americans, they don't care about any of that wreckage. They don't care about any of the after effects, even if Trump were to win. I mean, they're not even considering what that will mean going forward because unfortunately, folks, we are in the midst of dealing with a Democratic Party that is that is having a mass psychosis. They're having a, a collective nervous breakdown in slow motion for years and that's not going to change. But the the racial angle is their primary mode of attack right now. And it's going to be very, very ugly, which is why right now they're trying to figure, well, who's going to be the best candidate to lead that charge? I, I don't think it's going to be Biden, but maybe they're just going to figure, OK, well, we'll, we'll get behind Biden. Um, we got more on this. Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, uh, the economy. All kinds of things. Also, an, an interview with uh, with. Mike Pompeo, that I just think is indicative of how much disrespect is shown to this administration, including very 
There are people like Barr and Pompeo who have impeccable credentials and are true professionals and really smart guys. They're treated like crap by the they're treated like they might as well be the mooch, you know, Scaramucci who's running around making a total jerk of himself right now. But that's not nothing new. Uh, And then later on, a a surprise appearance um, with some audio, not 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 as a guest surprise audio from Mr. Piers Morgan on wokeness. No, you're going to want to hear it. Social justice stuff that's coming up. Stay with me. I was talking before team about how the. Democrat narrative is going to be one of a referendum on Trump's racism going into 2020. And just let's remember uh, how how reckless even the most mainstream publications and major media outlets will be in the way that they engage in race baiting and the way that they will try intentionally to exacerbate uh, racial division in this country. I mean, we are a country that overwhelmingly respects and loves and takes care of each other as our fellow Americans without regard to skin color. We do not care. We are Americans and we love each other as Americans. And yet the media seems to want to disagree and certainly has no problem allowing really crazy stuff to be said on air. This was just on CNN last night. Play four. The Four greatest women, terrorists are in this country. these two have taken over the Democratic Party, hijacked it from their own speaker. You think they've that taken it over, so Angela? Interesting. It's so interesting that you use the term for the two, the only two Muslim women in Congress. The term you chose to use, sir, is hijacking. Oh, really? Nothing you to do with that. You chose to use Absolutely the not. term hijacking. I beg to differ. And That's I right. I did because they hijacked the party from their own yeah, okay. principles. That's a from real interesting word choice, and you understand why. the Democratic Party. You can and talk that's one over me all you want to, but the bottom line is the greatest He's a lucky in guy. In this country, are white men, white men who think like you. That is <laughs> yes, the greatest terrorist you're right. threat in you're this country. You're absolutely right. It's all because of guys like me. You hear that, folks? It was on national TV last night. The, the greatest terrorist threat in this country are white guys like the guy. I don't even know who that was. That guy who was on CNN last night. White white guys, the greatest terrorist threat in the country. Okay. You're going to hear a lot more of that, too. A lot more of that lunacy. We'll be right back. Some of you may have seen the New York Times uh, kick off with uh, about a 100-page long article, series of articles, really, uh, of the 1619 Project, they're calling it. And it is meant to give a view of the American founding and American history, all starting with the sale of the first... 20 slaves at the uh, Jamestown colony and then take us throughout U.S. history from the perspective of slavery, essentially, and from those who both uh, suffered under slavery and then emerged after the Civil War from uh, from slavery and had to go through Jim Crow and uh, segregation. And now any historical project that you know, teaches more to the American people about what has really happened, uh, I think is is gen- is worthwhile. Just as a rule, Americans knowing more of their history is a very good thing. Um, now, the way that the New York Times has set this up, though, this 1619 project, it is quite clear what's going on. There needs to be an overarching narrative that the left mounts against Trump 
in 2020. And that narrative increasingly, they, I, I do believe much of the press thought that they'd be able to extend the Russia, Russia collusion insanity into 2020 and saying that Trump is a Russian asset and a Russian agent and all this stuff. I, I do believe that um, they thought they'd get more out of it than they have. But now they've gone back to the, the alternate Trump-defeating narrative in their minds, which is just call him the worst racist ever. And to do that, though, and, and to create a climate in this country where narratives about a racist president will, will have the most, most uh, fertile ground, you will see more race-baiting, more inflammatory rhetoric and news stories and, and pundits and talking heads uh, on TV in the next year than you have in a long time. I, I would think at any time in recent memory, honestly, because this is this is going to be a primary. Because what if the economy stays where it is? That well, what's the what's the real narrative? Vote vote against Trump because what? We're not fighting any big wars. The economy is doing well. Uh, we you know there's been no terrible policy that he's enacted that has ruined people's lives and all this. All these things we were told. So what is really the what is the the narrative that they offer up? They're going to focus in on race. It's going to be about Trump is a racist. Trump is a racist. That's what they're going to say. And so this 1619 project, which is going to be ongoing for the New York Times, is meant to take us very specific. Here, the quote, this is from the New York Times. The goal of a 1619 project, a major initiative from the New York Times, is to reframe American history by considering what it would mean to regard 1619 as our nation's birth year. Now, as I believe I mentioned you yesterday, there were slaves in the New World, uh, slaves brought from Africa in the New, uh, in the New World before 1619 um, in the Caribbean and, and in other, uh, other settlements. But they're saying that what happens if we view the American founding not as 1776, but as 1619 when the first slaves arrived? Now, this is, you could argue this is an interesting historical exercise to some extent. The problem is that it's going to be very political, and there will be a, a narrative of uh, accusation that runs through it up until the present when it's, oh, by the way, after all that has been overcome, after all that we have done in this country to deal with our racist past. You hear people like Beto O'Rourke saying we're, we're an indelibly racist country. After all of that, we must defeat Donald Trump, they will say, or else we will have fallen back generations in our fight to defeat racism. I mean, this is really, this is propaganda. This is propaganda. Now, history can be true and can still be framed in a propagandistic uh, mindset. I mean, you can, you can pick certain parts of history. And to say that 1619 is the American founding, it's just, it, that's not a, a true thing. That is not the American founding, but they are engaged in an editorializing and in, in the construction of narrative in order to have maximum impact for a for a storyline of America is still very racist, has gone through all these fights against racism. And guess what? Now the big fight that we have to wage against racism is defeating Donald Trump in 2020. That's where this is all going. I mean, that's what this is going to turn into. Um, and so I was appreciative and I'm reading. I have not yet finished the entire uh, initial 1619 publication i will uh, i've read some of it but my friend jim garrity over at the 
uh, over at National Review pointed out some very interesting omissions because this is all supposed to be about uh, looking at this. Quote, doing so requires us to place the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are as a country. So essentially, the black experience is the center of American history and the American founding in the 1619 Project. That's what they're doing. They're reimagining or repositioning the black experience, starting with slavery and then all the way up to present day in American history. Okay, so this is the intellectual exercise or the historical revision exercise that they are going through. What I think is so interesting is, as, as Jim Garrity points out here in National Review, uh, there are some omissions. Um, quote, early in Nicole Hannah-Jones's essay, she reiterates the important point. In every war this nation has waged since the first one, black Americans have fought. Uh, today, we're the most likely of all racial groups to serve in the United States military. The name Crispus Attucks is mentioned three times, but he is, as far as I can tell, the lone black Revolutionary War combatant mentioned. James Armistead was a spy for Lafayette who had access to General Cornwallis's headquarters. Um, he is not mentioned anywhere in here. The 1619 Project does not mention the Battle of Yorktown at all, even though by one account, one quarter of the American forces at the Battle of Yorktown were black. And there's a whole lot more. Quote, in the early 1860s, about 179,000 black men enlisted in the U.S. colored troops, almost 10% of the entire Union Army. The colored troops are not mentioned in the New York Times' 1619 Project. The Buffalo Soldiers are not mentioned in the 1619 Project. There's a brief mention of African-American soldiers heading west after the Civil War. Uh... In the seven times African-American soldiers are mentioned, they are generally described as victims who have merely shifted from one system of subjugation and exploitation to another. Jim Garrity goes on, quote, there's no mention of the Harlem Hellfighters uh, in the war, in, uh, Harlem Hellfighters in World War One and no mention of Dory Miller's heroism at Pearl Harbor. The, her the horrors of the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis uh, in African-American males are discussed, but the Tuskegee Airmen are never mentioned. African-American heroism on the battlefield doesn't really fit the narrative the 1619 Project is trying to tell. In fact, you could argue the essays are so wedded to a narrative of white brutality and black victimhood that they seem to fear that spotlighting any example of a successful African-American defiance of oppression would undermine their argument. There's no mention of Jesse Owens at the 1936 Olympic Games. There's no mention of Jackie Robinson. There's no mention of Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson, the African-American mathematicians who worked for NASA, as depicted in the film Hidden Figures. Uh, there's only three mentions, and now I'm, I'm not quoting anymore, but I'm just looking more at the article. And there's only three mentions of Frederick Douglass in this entire thing. Um, you just go through this, and oh, there's no mention of Harriet Tubman in the 1619 Project. Uh, yeah, Harriet Tubman is never mentioned. Booker T. Washington is never mentioned. Uh, abolitionist Sojourner Truth, uh, Shirley Chisholm, 
Benjamin Oliver Davis Sr., the first African-American general for the U.S. Army. Ida Wells, a journalist who documented lynchings and co-founded the NAACP. Duke Ellington, Rosa Parks, none of them are ever mentioned. Now, I'd ask you, friends, I haven't yet read this, but how is it possible that this is telling the stories that need to be told if none of these individuals are ever mentioned? What is really at work here? What is really the purpose the New York Times is seeking to achieve with this project? I will read it, and I will tell you more when I can. Do you support the death penalty for domestic terrorists like Timothy McVeigh and down the line the uh, El Paso shooter? I do not. Uh, don't support the death penalty. I don't know that taking uh, another life will prevent the taking of lives going forward. Um, understand that some people feel differently, and, and it is hard to argue with them after seeing the, the faces of, of the lives lost. Hard to argue with those in El Paso who feel that way when someone came in and killed 22 human beings in, in our community. Um, but at the end of the day, that's that's my belief, and um, and and uh, but I but I understand those who, who feel differently about it. I got to tell you something. I I know Beto has not been the political phenomenon that the mainstream media really tried to make him into. And it was all because he was a leftist hero just for trying to defeat Ted Cruz in Texas. That that made him that alone made him a a hero to the left. Um, He didn't win, of course, but they they propped him up as much as they possibly could. Now he's running for president, and he's someone who, whenever, I, whenever I've heard him speak, whether it's on the debate stage or just giving interviews all the time, I've never heard this guy say anything insightful or useful or worthwhile. It's, it's as though you took a uh, really a second or third tier MSNBC contributor, you know, some guy who's always trying to be woke and apologizing for his white privilege, I'm just like, I'm so sorry about my white privilege. And uh, he, he's, he's like one of those MSNBC contributors who are interchangeable and just go on TV and try to give the most platitudinous, worthless statements imaginable about, you know, the Democratic Party and Trump is a racist and blah, blah, and all this other crap. It, it's amazing that this guy has gotten the attention he has. And I'm just thankful that at some point, I think we'll no longer have to live through this delusion of Betomania. Um, he, there he said he does not support the death penalty for white supremacist, the white supremacist who uh, murdered the uh, 22 people in El Paso. You know, I, I will tell you, de- the be- death penalty is somewhere that I, I do go a bit back and forth on it. Um, I, I think, well, I'm also somebody, though, who I think if we're going to have a death penalty, it should be firing squad. I don't think that we should have a, a medically a medically induced death penalty uh, go through this procedure of a lethal injection and make it seem like this is a medical procedure. No, it should be a firing squad. I, I really think that that's, which, by the way, there's not going to be any mistake about what the outcome is going to be. And it is quick and it is very clear how that whole thing would go down. Now you're hearing people say we can't get the drugs to do lethal injections and people fight and say it's cruel and unusual punishment. Well, if we give law enforcement and military the right to use lethal force under certain circumstances using firearms, I think we should be we, I think the state can make a very clear case that it can use lethal force with firearms against an individual who has uh, committed heinous, heinous crimes and is beyond a reasonable doubt guilty. That said, the, the idea of 
one innocent person sitting on death row or even being executed uh, is just too horrible for words. And I would note that Kamala Harris was accused on stage at a Democrat debate by Tulsi Gabbard, by a fellow Democrat, of knowing that there were some individuals on death row who were likely innocent and not taking action. And I don't know what the details of those cases are. I haven't been able to look at it quite yet. But I do know that Kamala didn't say that's a horrible lie. I would never do that, which I thought was I thought was stunning. That was just absolutely mind blowing that that was the situation. So but here we are. Um, Back to uh, the candidates for a moment, because, you know, now now we're starting to see who's going to be in the mix for the next debate. Uh, You're going to see some people dropping out, I think. Marianne Williamson's probably going to drop out. I don't know what's going to happen with John. <laughs> I keep bringing up John Delaney just because, here, look, I know he's not going to be president. He knows he's not going to be president. Um, but it is it is very interesting to me that in the modern Democratic Party, if you are someone who speaks sense on basic economics and and the reality of, say, you know, our healthcare system or reality of the economy, you are unelectable as a Democrat now. I mean, it is not possible for you to be elected if you tell Democrats things like we don't have a special magic money tree we can go to to fund free college for everyone, free health care for everyone, free child care for everyone, free housing for, you know, all this stuff. That's why John Delaney, I mean, look, he's he's talking some sense. He's a Democrat. I'm sure I, I hate a lot of things that he would want policy-wise. But this guy might not even make it on the stage for the next debate. And he says stuff like this. Play 14. We're the candidate that actually has an economic vision for what this country needs. And we need a new economic vision for this country. Trump's economic model isn't working. What my uh, Democratic opponents are running on doesn't make any sense. It's a bunch of impossible promises and fairy tale economics. He's right about that. It is it is impossible promises and fairy tale economics. But that's what you've got to do these days to get any attention in the Democratic Party. You have to you have to just go overboard making wildly false promises that no serious person could think would ever be able to be kept. That's what's really happening. That is the Democratic Party these days. Now, he says that Trump's economic plan is not working. That's just not true. Uh, so this is where I mean, I'm not saying Delaney's some wonderful magician and you know i wish he was a republican and everything else no i mean the guy's he's still a democrat but he's a democrat who can't get one percent of the vote because if you're going to be a democrat these days you have to live in fantasy land too that's the takeaway from this you've got to you've got to be uh beto like in your wokeness i think that you know what it is with beto I, i think that people just realize that there's nothing he doesn't have the name recognition of some of these other candidates. Because why aren't more Democrats getting behind this guy? Why can't he get above you know four or five percent? I think in the polls, and that might even be high. Uh, it's because why Beto is a question that I don't even think he could answer. And there are other candidates that fall in this category too. I mean, look, right now it's a three-way race between uh, Warren, Biden, and Bernie. It's really Biden and Bernie with Warren kind of waiting in the wings. Uh, Kamala has. Her, her polls have fallen off a cliff recently. She went from in the 
in the solid mid to high teens to down to single digits. And I, I think it's because of what I brought up, which is that she had no real response, no rejoinder when Tulsi Gabbard, who comes across as pretty measured and and even occasionally reasonable, uh, Tulsi Gabbard went after her and you were left thinking, wow, is what Tulsi said about Kamala true? Because it certainly seemed true based on the lack of counterpunch, the lack of real response. But this is the Democratic Party, folks. It's we're going to get deeper into this as this goes on, but it's going to be it's going to be a wild ride. Welcome back to the Buck Saxon Show team. I, I think that Ilhan Omar and uh, Rashida Tlaib have gotten far too much uh, media attention at this point. But it's because the media refuses to accept what is very obvious. That here we have two Democrats who are elected members of Congress who are, in fact, quite anti-Semitic, hate the state of Israel, and refuse to back down from that, apologize for that. They, This is what they believe. This is who they are on this issue. I mean... We've already had Ilhan Omar get into trouble in the past for things she said about it's all about the Benjamins and Israel's hypnotized the world. And now you might say, Buck, I mean, how much time do we have to spend? This is one ally that we have in the world. Why is there so much media focus on this? Well, there's so much media focus on this in part because the media refuses to just accept what's going on here, which is that Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, two Democrat leftist anti-Semites, are telling us who they are and what they believe. They, they, are, they are not shy about it. I mean, here's, here's Ilhan Omar, for example, just earlier this week, play six. We give Israel more than $3 million in aid every year. This is predicated on their being an important ally in the region and the only democracy in the Middle East. But denying visit to duly elected members of Congress is not consistent with being an ally and denying millions of people freedom of movement or expression or self-determination is not consistent with being a democracy. Not consistent with being an ally, huh? That's weird because the U.S. didn't let an Israeli member of the Knesset visit in 2012 because the Obama administration said he was too right wing. So were, were we being a bad ally? I'm sure you didn't hear that from the media. Who would really expect that in a small country like Israel, they would accept visits from politicians who are really calling for an end of this state of Israel? That's, I, I'm sorry, but you know, being a good ally is not, is not a suicide pact. You don't have to say, yeah, I want to be a good ally, so I want to let those people in that want to destroy my country. She also mentioned it's it's not a democracy to allow millions of you know to not allow millions of people free movement into your country. Yeah, yeah, because they're not citizens of Israel. They live in the West Bank. They live in Gaza. Those are other places. They're 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 not citizens of the Israeli state, and they're not going to become citizens of the Israeli state because states do have a right to determine who is a part and who is not. We may have forgotten that somewhat in this country, but the Israelis certainly have not forgotten that. And yet Rashida Tlaib, we already heard from Omar here, Rashida Tlaib thinks that Israel, and this is a classic leftist uh, trope in this country, you'll hear this frequently, that Israel is similar to apartheid South Africa. Play eight. History does have a habit of repeating itself. I learned this week 
that a former member of Congress, Congressman Charles C. Diggs Jr., was denied entry into apartheid South Africa in 1972. He was also the representative for the 13th Congressional District in Michigan. I was born and raised in the beautiful Detroit, where many of my African-American teachers taught me about the realities of oppression and justice and the need to speak up and take action. Growing up in a city that has been at the center of many social justice movements for civil rights, labor rights, and equality, and absorbing those lessons has shaped who I am today and drives me to push for peace and justice for the Palestinian and Israeli people. Wow. Bringing up the uh, uh, apartheid situation here because keep in mind, folks, she was given, she was given the opportunity to go to the West Bank, to leave. She's Palestinian by descent. Her parents or grandparents are Palestinian. She was told she could go as long as she promised not to meet with this MIFTA group that wants to destroy Israel and is viciously anti-Semitic. I mean, this isn't really that complicated. And guess what? She wanted to see, you know, grandma so badly that she decided, well, if I can't see the the Jew-hating lunatics of MIFTA, I don't want to go see grandma either. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? I I thought this was about a family visit. Folks, please. We know what's going on. We understand what's going on here. But now they're they're pretending that it was a ban on both of them, and even CNN today, which is a disreputable trash heap of a place, CNN today was was referring to a ban on Omar and her colleague. Play five. The decision to ban me and my colleagues... The first, my colleague, the first two Muslim American women elected to Congress is nothing less than an attempt by an ally of the United States to suppress our ability to do our jobs as elected officials. Nope. This has nothing to do with them doing their job as elected officials. This has to do with the far left anti-Semitic Democrat fringe that unfortunately now runs the party just because it's on the fringe in terms of popular support nationally doesn't mean they're not in charge. They are increasingly AOC and the squad. They are in charge. Uh, This has nothing to do with them doing their jobs. This has everything to do with two people showing their constituents and really just doing what I think they want to do on a personal level, which is spend time with individuals that hate the state of Israel that really, and that are working to, take very damaging action against the state of Israel. You know when Trump is great, when the media is just being a bunch of hacks, they won't really tell the truth, they won't really criticize Tlaib or Omar. Um, media is telling, you know, telling tales about this that are either untrue or misdirected because they view them as one. Of course, they're, they're protected because they're female Muslim minorities, uh, and Democrats think that means they must be protected. But then also they attack Trump and so how do you how are leftists fair in their minds to somebody who attacks Trump? They have to give them special consideration. Trump cuts through all this nonsense and he's like, this is all crap. Play 19. When you read the things that they've said about Israel, how bad. And if you look at their itinerary before they found out, you take a look at their itinerary. That was all going to be a propaganda tour against Israel. So I don't blame Israel for doing what they did. I have nothing to do with it, but I don't blame them for doing what they did. I think it would have been very bad to let them in, including 
The four. I'm talking about all four. But these two that wanted to get in, Omar and Tlaib. And I think it would be a very bad thing for Israel, but Israel has to do what they want to do. And now there are people who are even saying that, well, you had Omar herself bring up the aid. She said three million. She meant three billion. The aid we give to Israel and Trump's like, not on my watch, 20. But I would not cut off aid to Israel. And I can't even believe that we're having this conversation. Five years ago, the concept of even talking about this, even three years ago, of cutting off aid to Israel because of two people that hate Israel and hate Jewish people. I can't believe we're even having this conversation. Where has the Democratic Party gone? Where have they gone where they're defending these two people over the state of Israel? And I think any Jewish people that vote for a Democrat, uh, I think it shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. Trump doesn't mince words, my friends. We got more on this. Stay with me. The purpose behind focusing on this is to try to distract attention from the reality on the ground, which is funded by American tax dollars. Our tax dollars blow up the homes of people who cannot get permits to build because they're non-citizens under military law. Would this be your standard for white nationalist organizations? Oh, they just say say some racist things. They support some terrorism. With all due respect, that's okay. You have not been there and seen this on the ground. I I know Hanana Shrawi. She is nothing close to a white nationalist. She is someone seeking freedom. But then why does the organization why does the organization publish things supporting terrorism? Rich. I disagree with violent <laughs> resistance. Yeah, but why, why but do they? It is because, because a lot of Palestinians believe that because they are subject to daily violence of a system which denies them basic rights, they have the right to respond violently. I disagree with them. But an African-American who supported violence against the United States under slavery or Jim Crow, that did not excuse their denial of basic rights because I disagree with the tactic they were using to resist it. Wow. I mean, this was like this was a real moment on CNN. And we've got another one coming up here in a second. But just to give you a sense of what they'll put on TV there, you had Rich Lowry talking to Peter Beiner, the one who was the one who was yelling really loudly and rich, rich, rich. You've not been that, you know, the one who's yelling and being all crazy. I've tried to debate Beiner before. He yells. He talks over. He's he's just he's just way out of line. He's very, very annoying. Um, But. Beinert, uh there is trying to do the impossible, which is to say, essentially, you know, OK, OK, so maybe they do terrorism. I don't like terrorism, but like the terrorism they do is kind of justified, even though I don't think it's justified. You know? Talking about the Palestinians and Palestinian terrorism. Now, this was quite a conversation that was going on here on CNN. Um, he said, quote, a lot of Palestinians believe that because they are subject to daily violence of a system which, which denies them basic rights, they have the right to respond violently. These are, these are, uh, there's a lot of vagueness here. There's a lot, of, a lot of weasel words, a lot of, oh, just to respond violently. Well, responding violently could be, uh, could be punching somebody in the face, right? Responding violently could be uh, going to war, uh, fighting an insurgency against military targets. But what the Palestinian jihadists have done is to try and kill as many men, women, and children as possible, emphasis on the women and children, to deploy suicide bombers, male or female, to wedding halls, to crowded discotheques, to shopping centers, 
to pack suicide vests with as much shrapnel as possible to blind and maim and gut men, women, children, and babies. All the Palestinians care about is that they're killing Jews. That's what Palestinian jihad is all about. That's what the Palestinian resistance fighters that Mr. Beinert here is trying to excuse at some level or justify. And let, let me just say this. To his point about, uh, about you know, because this is now, obviously, we've got this whole New York Times. The, America really started in 1619, and the lens of American, the American founding should be when the first 20 slaves were, were purchased in uh, Jamestown, the Jamestown colony. And let me just say this. Uh, it would actually not be moral or ethical if even under a slave state, you had a slave who, say, uh, got got free and decided in a rebellion to go kill a 10-year-old girl somewhere who had nothing to do with anything, right? Which is what Palestinian terrorists do. They'll, they'll kill children. They'll kill anybody. They don't care. They'll, as long as they're killing people who are Jews, who are Israelis, Israeli Jews, what they're looking to kill, uh, nothing else matters. So even in the, in the case of, that he's using here of, of say, a, a slave insurrection, where, yes, uh, violence against the masters, violence against owners would be morally justified. Violence against uh, children who have no say in anything. Violence against old, old women who don't. And keep in mind also that you had in, in, the, in the South, in this country, uh, you had 97% of the slaves were owned by 3% of the Southern population. So very few people in the South as an overall percentage of the population actually owned slaves. Uh, so now you get into what is the degree of moral culpability for just living in a society where there is great immorality around you, but I'm getting a bit deeper down the... Uh, down the hole here than I intended to. Beinert's position is insane. And that's why Rich Lowry is just saying, so is terrorism okay or not, dude? Like, can you just give me an answer here? You know, no, you don't understand, Rich, because I'm just going to yell and get really shrill and crazy and say that, well, well, violence and oppression of the people in Palestine. It's like, oh, dude, please. Please. Really. You know, uh, this is where Bill Maher was very correct. Palestinians are not living in the West Bank and Gaza just because the Israelis are super mean and nothing happened before this. And this is some racial purity uh, regime that has come to power in Israel out of nowhere that, you know, there's there's a huge history, a long history, a very involved history that has no shortage of people who really want to kill Jews, eradicate the Jews uh, and including no shortage of people from the Muslim world, neighbors of the state of Israel now that were seeking to do just that. And they lost. And there are consequences to losing fights. There are consequences to losing wars. There were several wars that were fought to exterminate the Jews from the state of Israel in the 20th century. And the Arab states that tried lost. And instead of absorbing the Palestinian refugees from those conflicts, they've decided to keep them in a perpetual state of grievance and pretend, and this is what Hamas does, these other words, they pretend that one day they will take it all back, which is a, a horrible, um, a, a horrible thing to teach children, never mind adults, 
But that is what they're teaching. Um, but this is why the, the Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib situation, where they want to go and meet with a group that is advocating for the eradication of the Israeli state through economic warfare, because that's what it would be. It would be the Israeli state ceases to be a functional sovereign democracy because once you have BDS, right, sanctions, um, boycott, and divestiture, I don't know why I did that in the, wrong, in the wrong order, but once you have a policy of that in place, then the economy will be frozen, effectively, and the state of Israel will be brought to its knees. That's the whole purpose, to humiliate and degrade the state of Israel so that it no longer can make decisions about its own security, can make decisions about its own future, and that two members of the U.S. Congress would want to be associated not just with that campaign, but with a group that publishes explicitly anti-Semitic cartoons, which this MIFTA group does, a group that absolutely supports um, absolutely supports jihadist terrorists in the past. And then to try to say that this is because, oh, the Palestinians are treated so badly. Uh, a lot of people have political grievances. And people all over the world feel like they're not, they're not being heard. It's a pretty small subset of the globally oppressed who would ever strap on a suicide vest and walk into a wedding and think that they were doing something righteous. This is an unfortunate moral and psychological rot within the Palestinian community. It's just reality. Very few places around the world where you would have the family members of so-called, uh, what, shaheed, martyrs. That's what they call them when they try to kill as many people as they can. The family members supporting this and thinking that this was a good idea that they killed all these innocent people. Uh, so, I mean, Beinert is... One, he's of this school of leftists who think that, and also I love that you haven't been there on the ground or ever, you know. You don't need to be there on the ground to know that supporting terrorism is really bad. You know, this is like, do I need to have been there on the ground in Pyongyang to know that Kim Jong-un is a dictator? Because I'm pretty sure he is. Well, this is what you get at CNN, though. Rich Lowry did a great job just by looking at him like, okay, dude, you're just, you're just crazy. Like, can we just, can we just go on the record here, Biner, you and your leftist, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, uh, folks are are crazy. So that's what we got out of the segment. I think the word recession is a word that's inappropriate because it's just a word that the uh, the certain people, I'm going to be kind, certain people in the media are trying to build up because they'd love to see a recession. Uh, we're very far from a recession. Uh, in fact, if the Fed would do its job, I think would have a tremendous spurt of growth a tremendous spurt. The Fed is psychologically very important. Less so, actually, but very psychologically important. The Fed and Trump have had some uh, some words, and the the Federal Reserve is is fascinating for many of us because I think if you were to ask the, most Americans what it does, or even how it came to be, or how long it's been around, it is the most important unknown organ of the United States government that is really out there. Um, and, and that's why I think there's also a fair amount. Well, you'd say there's conspiracies around it, but it is true that you just had, what was it, a hundred of the biggest bankers in the world show up at Jekyll Island in the, what was it, in the early part, early phase, 19, um, producer Mark, tell me when the Fed was formed. I think it was like 1918. When was the Fed formed? Um, 
but you had a bunch of people who were very connected who got together and uh, 1913, sorry, Buck, get it together. Three, eight, it was close enough. Um, they get together at Jekyll Island and they just formed this thing. Um, and I would just say that uh, it is true that we have come to have skepticism. Skepticism of anything the government does is acceptable and some would even say patriotic. Until you have a Republican president who is skeptical of the Federal Reserve deciding what would be best for the economy. I mean, the, the whole notion, I mean, really think about this. Look, I'm, I'm not an economist, and this is the area I've had the least professional uh, background. I, I'm an autodidact on economic matters. I mean, in politics and national security, I've done work in those fields. But on, on economics, I've had to just learn and teach myself like most of the rest of the world. And what's fascinating is is the the notion of a of an overheated economy. Oh, it's, it's overheated, so you know the Fed's going to pull pull things back a little bit. That doesn't even really make sense. Does that mean people are there's more economic activity? Let's slow down all this economic activity. Is an economic activity good? Uh, the the Federal Reserve was supposed to prevent the boom and bust cycle. Uh, well, it was really supposed to pre- prevent bank runs that were happening. Um, because it, and one rumors could bring one bank down to its knees, and they've got all these different rules now about uh, hard currency reserves. What is that? Five, six percent, I think they have to have on hand. And and if there was a bank run, the bank would go under, and then there could be all this different contagion, and other banks would go under. Yeah, the Federal Reserve was supposed to stop this, and there's a lot of people who argue that this now has become a tool of government policy that is largely unaccountable. And, and you certainly see that when the president criticizes Federal Reserve policy and everyone acts like the Federal Reserve is the Supreme Court. How dare you, sir, question the Federal Reserve? I mean, it has, it controls monetary policy. And yet there's also private control and there's uh, some private ownership of the different Federal Reserve branches and their stock issued. It's like, it's the whole, it's this really complicated system that very few people would be able to, off the top of their heads, explain. And yet it has a tremendous influence on the economy. And as a result, it also has a lot of influence on who's going to win the next election, folks. You know, the the argument right now from the administration is that if there hadn't been a change in Fed policy, if there hadn't been a raising of interest rates, right? Because the very bait, and again, I, I understand economics at a basic level. Um, so the very the the straightforward, what does the Fed do? Well, when it raises interest rates, so you have to spend more money to borrow money, right? And the Fed discount window, all the, all the different banks go to the discount window, and then they lend. They lend money out to people is what they're supposed to do, although there's a lot of argument they haven't been doing enough of that. And when money has a, when the borrowing of money has a higher price, there is less borrowing of that money, less lending out of money, therefore less economic activity. And they say they do this as, as in part to control inflation. We've had very low inflation, even though we've had QE. No one really knows where all this is going, by the way. And, and I don't mean to be that guy, but the history of fiat currency is that it always goes to zero. Find, find me a country that had fiat currency tied to nothing, just the government. It always goes to zero. So when is ours going to go to zero? Hopefully not for a thousand years, but I don't think that's going to be the case. But the Federal Reserve is very influential in economic outlook and how, how things are going to be 
for Trump. And I, I do believe that the at least the consensus opinion right now, which doesn't mean anything because the election's more than a year away, but the consensus opinion is that Trump loses or I'm, sh- I'm sorry, Trump wins if the economy is pretty strong. Trump is in a much more precarious position if the economy is weak. And that's why taking action now or, or putting out different uh, policy proposals that could result in a very positive economic burst, uh, something that the president's a bit focused on, which is why he's talking today, that's what I'm trying to get to here, folks, about payroll taxes. Huh, play 15. Payroll taxes, I've been thinking of payroll taxes for a long time. Whether or not we do it now or not is, uh, uh, it's not being done because of recession, because we are legitimately, if we had a cut in interest rates by uh, the Fed, if they would do their job properly, and if they would do a meaningful cut because they raised too fast, uh, you would see growth like you've not seen ever in this country. I mean, the president is a great salesman. Say what you will about him. And he is certainly selling this idea to the public that the Fed tightening things up was not the right move for the economy. Now, now is Trump right? Are they right? I would note that the Fed is, we believe that there's this wizard behind the curtain and that they know all these things. Why do we believe that <laughs> about this quasi-private, quasi-government institution that's uh, a little over 100 years old and no one really understands and knows how it, I mean, when I say nobody, very few people really understand how it works and yet it has such an impact on our lives. Uh, it, it is really going to come down to the economy. I mean, that's that's why Democrats right now have created, have put so much out there about race and and the racial narratives or about how Trump is, you know, white nationalist, all this different stuff, because there is no anti-Trump economic narrative that's going to get anybody to the polls right now. That's why, is the Fed going to play a very important role in the next election? Well, Fed policy could help determine who the next president is. Keep that in mind. You have a lot of support, Mr. Secretary. They say the State Department morale is better under your watch. Uh, People feel good about what they do, but you've got critics. One former American ambassador who shall not be named, this is delicate, describes you like a heat-seeking missile for Trump's bottom, except he used the other word. When you hear stuff like that, to compare how you are with this president, what do you think? I find it language offensive, and I find the statement uh, ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work hard. I work hard for the president of the United States, who was constitutionally elected. He, he is my leader. Uh, my task is to share with him the best information. If we disagree, uh, my duty is to go share with him our disagreements. I do that uh, with great frequency. Uh, but when he makes a decision, and it's legal, it is my task to go execute that with all the energy and power that I have. Do you think that Gail King of a CBS morning show, whatever it's called. Do you think that she ever would have asked a uh, Obama secretary of state, whether it was uh, you know Hillary Clinton or John Kerry? Hey, we heard a rumor from, by the way, there's ambassadors all over the place. Some ambassadors are people who just raise some money. They have some connection to the administration from being bundlers or fundraisers or they wrote a big check or something. Do you think that Gail King ever would have said to Kerry or to Clinton, hey, there's some unnamed ambassador who says that you you kiss the president's butt on a national TV platform? Do you think so? 
Do you, think, do you think that's a responsible question to ask the Secretary of State? Let me let me go back a little further here. Do you think that that Gail King of CBS? Do you think it's responsible to ask Mike Pompeo, Army veteran, West Point grad, Harvard Law School grad, number one in his class of a thousand cadets at West Point? I mean. A pretty serious guy who served his country for many, many years and is now the sitting secretary of state. And by the way, is doing a far better job at this than his predecessors in the Obama administration. And yes, his first predecessor in the Trump administration too, Tillerson. You're going to say some some unnamed, cowardly, sniveling little deep state wannabe ambassador taking cheap shots at the secretary of state. You're going to, you're going to give that you're going to air that out on national TV. Let me ask, what does Gail King think Pompeo is really going to say here? Yeah, you're right. I kissed the president's butt a lot. What kind of a dumb question is that? From somebody who's paid millions of dollars to be a journalist. This is why look, journalism is, isn't really a thing anymore. We just have competing narrative mills there are there are individual acts of journalism but overall news entities have fallen into partisan camps and it's never going to change and cbs is not conservative folks i just thought that was a such a a telling moment such a telling moment that you have the sitting secretary of state giving you the the privilege and it's a privilege to, to interview any secretary of state as a journalist giving me i interviewed pompeo what was last month he's spending his time to try to talk about policy and inform the american people about how diplomacy run by individuals who are not internationalist faculty lounge uh wannabe left-wing imbeciles, which is what you had under the Obama administration. I mean, people that just don't know the first damn thing about anything. What's it like when you're running foreign policy, not not allowing for massive catastrophes to uh, unfold as it did under the Obama administration? You'll, you'll notice a whole lot less jihadist terrorism going on under the Trump years. Isn't that the case? Isn't that interesting? Not fighting a war in Libya, not allowing Syria to become a total mess on our watch as we do some things here and some things there, but never enough to really have any positive, positive impact. It's really astonishing. I mean, the disrespect. I saw, uh, you know, Juan Williams wrote in The Hill and I, I wrote another piece and it was. It referenced his, but it was really just about this idea that liberals cling to that if only they would abandon decency the way Trump does, then they'd really be in a good spot. Then they'd really be in a good position to fight back against Trump. They treat this president and the people around him indecently all the time, which is why even though I don't always agree with what the president tweets, I think that sometimes it can be a distraction. Sometimes I think it's great, by the way. Sometimes I think that he is the necessary corrective to the lib madness. But Trump is almost superhuman in his ability to endure their insults, their cheap shots, 
They're dissembling. They're lying. All meant to take him down. All meant to ruin him. Trump just keeps on coming. And I give him a tremendous amount of credit for that. The Secretary of State has more important things to address. You would think if you were Gail King than some anonymous allegation. I mean, this think about this, folks. She posed to him an anonymous allegation from a from a a random diplomat. And by the way, this foreign service is full of left wing crybaby Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren loving loons full of it. Not everybody, but a lot of them over there. I mean, the State Department is just everyone's. Oh, we're all so international and we're so sophisticated and all countries are basically the same. I've been around it. It's it's just it's ridiculous. But she thinks that she should ask about whether whether the secretary of state kisses the president's butt. And Mike Pompeo, meanwhile, wants to talk about, oh, I don't know, dealing with Iran, holding China accountable, serious stuff that the secretary of state is tackling. Here's Pompeo, play play clip nine in the uh, this is what he's saying about what's going on with Iran. These are uh, oil profits that when this is ultimately sold somewhere into the market uh, that will run back to the uh, Qasem Soleimani and the Iranian Quds Force, their elite forces that have sown terror and destruction and killed Americans all around the world. Look, we got to shut off the Iranian economy. We got to bring it down to its knees. And this is what was happening until Obama decided to throw Iran a lifeline. Why? Not only did Obama decide and his you know, chief foreign policy aides, people of the great wisdom and brilliance like John Kerry, a third-rate intellectual at best. The guy doesn't marry two very rich women. I don't think he becomes a senator for anything, all right? Yeah, not one, two, two very rich women. Interesting. So we're not allowed to have a real conversation, it seems, about foreign policy challenges today. We have to have... Oh, let's let's take a cheap shot at the president, secretary. I'm sure that got more attention than anything else that she asked him or anything she said. And it was disrespectful. That's what Gail King's question was a disrespectful question. It was shameful to ask the secretary of state that. But they always they always say this. You know, now I've seen there's this uh, this fight that's been breaking out this week over uh, whether anybody who is a senior Republican official believed in birtherism under the Obama years. And everyone's like, oh, well, well Trump believed in, in birtherism. Trump wasn't a senior Republican official during the Obama years. So, and we can try to pretend that that was true. It's not true. He was a private citizen. He was not in government. He had nothing to do ostensibly with the functioning of the, of the uh, Republican Party. Uh, meanwhile, you've had, for, for three years now, liberals living in this complete psychotic delusion that the president colluded with Russia. And, you know, helping that, do you want to talk about helping our enemies? It helps our enemies when the multi-billion dollar media apparatus in this country takes the position that the current commander-in-chief is illegitimate. I think that emboldens our enemies a whole lot. And I think asking our Secretary of State on national TV if he kisses the commander-in-chief's butt too much is also emboldening our enemies. Unfortunately, we have enemies, not just foreign, but but domestic, too. That much is clear. All right, team, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. You know, team, I think that we have we have some rules here, right? We, we don't necessarily write them down. I wouldn't say that they're necessarily official, but we definitely have 
some rules that we talk about, right? Um, I say things like, always leave room for crazy or, oh, uh, but here's another one because we're about to talk about it. No matter who it is, I give credit where it is due, right? If somebody is saying the right thing, doing the right thing, I will speak of that action of that speech, whatever it may be, as correct, even if it's somebody that I generally think can be a bit of a clown or a jerk or a bad person or any of the above. Piers Morgan is someone who has had had a remarkable career for a very short period of time in the American media. I bring that up because he got cast on a show as a, a reality uh, reality show judge on America's Got Talent. And I remember being like, who is this guy? He's like, oh, you're fantastic. I've got a British accent. So now I get to be on television. And he, he was on that show. And then he, for some reason, unbeknownst to me, they decided to put him on CNN as his own, get him his own show and pay him a whole lot of money from what I understand, millions and millions of dollars to go on CNN and lecture the American people about things he doesn't know the first thing about. But that was the, you know, some people, libs get really impressed by British accents. It's a thing. Um, but, you know, Piers Morgan, he went on, he went on a Ben Shapiro show. And I got to tell you, he had a pretty epic rant on how libs are annoying, very much out of the mold of what you'd hear from, say, a Bill Maher, who Bill on a lot of things. Bill is absolutely just cannot stand Trump, thinks Trump's the worst. But Bill will say that snowflakery and lib woke stuff is just nonsense. And he's willing to be honest about that. Whereas um, Beers Morgan or first of all, most liberals will never do that. Piers Morgan kind of got in the same zone here. Here's here's what he said. Play clip one. Liberalism is rising because liberals have become unbearable. And I speak as a liberal, okay? I, I In my core, I'm probably more liberal than not. Although fundamentally, I see myself as a journalist and I'd like to see both sides of all these things. And I can argue both. But liberals have become utterly, pathetically illiberal. And it's a massive problem. What's the point of calling yourself a liberal if you don't allow anyone else to have a different view? You know, this snowflake culture that we now operate in, the victimhood culture, the, you know, everyone is, has to think a certain way, behave a certain way. Everyone has to, you know, have a bleeding heart and tell you 20 things that are wrong with them. And, you know, I just think it's all completely skewed to an environment where everyone's offended by everything. Where are we? The liberals get what they want, which is a humorless void where nothing happens, where no one dare do anything or laugh about anything or behave in any way that doesn't suit their rigid way of leading a life. No, thanks. This is crazy. You can't, nothing can be funny anymore. You know, I mean, I I really thought to myself today, I I made a very, a very harmless joke. Okay, here, let me, let me tell you what the joke was. The Hill tweeted this out. Ocasio-Cortez blasts electoral college as a scam. And I then tweeted... Quote, there's like no beer pong at all, no frat parties. It's like the worst college ever. The electoral college is a total scam. Clearly a joke. It's actually not a mean joke at all. You know, like, can we have any fun in life? 
Who wants to guess if there were libs who got up into my mentions and my timeline and stuff were like, oh, it's not funny. You shouldn't make jokes. That's sexist. I'm like, why is it sexist? I'm making a joke about the fact that she's young and dumb and she's talking about college. It's not sexist. Make the same joke about anybody. <sighs> they do not like, they do not have a sense of humor. They do not like a sense of humor. It, they, they really are just uh, scolds. I mean, they just go around making sure, you know, I, I remember hearing that the definition of a Puritan is that uh, I think this might have been H.L. Mencken. I, I heard, I heard Christopher Hitchens say it once. The definition of a Puritan is somebody who is lives in the constant fear that someone somewhere is having a good time. You know, that that's that it's obviously a bit tongue in cheek, but there's some truth to it. Uh, that's the way liberals are now, which is amazing because they're supposed to be the creatives. They're supposed to be the ones that are uh, pushing boundaries, making us laugh, making us emotional, making us think. That's what liberals think of as their their area, as their bailiwick. But really what they've become are these petty totalitarians that want to prevent people from making jokes from even, you know, humor and satire are very effective means of advancing ideas and very important for holding power accountable and and for being a check on bad or wrong ideas. You know, it's, it's one thing if somebody says, I disagree with you. It's another thing if somebody ridicules your foolish idea. And they've tried to take that away from conservatives. Any joke you make now, they're going to say it's either racist, it's sexist, it's punching down, it's... And even if it has nothing to do with any of that, but just if you make fun of some some aspect of liberalism that is sacred to them, they will come up with... And, and if nothing else, they'll just attack you for your white male privilege or for those of you who are listening who aren't white, your, you know, your male privilege or your conservative privilege or whatever, whatever it is, you know. Piers Morgan uh, made some sense here with this. I mean, he he's a liberal because being a liberal in the media means that you have a better better career prospects, and it's very it's a very convenient thing to be a liberal in the media, to be sure. But uh, he also said that he understands why there's a rise in populism, and this was again from this in interview on a Ben Shapiro Sunday show. Play clip two. So what's happening around the world? Populism is rising because people are fed up with the PC culture. They're fed up with snowflakery. They're fed up with everyone being offended by everything. And they're gravitating to forceful personalities who go, this is all nonsense. Which, by the way, it is in most cases. So why are we surprised? I'm not surprised. It doesn't mean to say that I agree with all of it, but it means I can understand it. And I understand why the liberals, my side, if you like, are getting it so horribly wrong. They just want to tell people not just how to lead their lives, but if you don't lead it the way I tell you to, you know, it's a kind of version of fascism. You don't lead the life the way I'm telling you to. Then I'm going to ruin your life. I'm going to scream abuse at you. I'm going to get you fired from your job. I'm going to get you hounded by your family and friends. I'm going to make you the most disgusting human being. He's absolutely right. Now, I, I would offer to you that this is all obvious. But here's, here's the important takeaway that I have from this is that Piers Morgan, there are, there are beginning to be some cracks in the facade of unified left-wing narrative dominance on this stuff. There are starting to be some defectors from this totalitarian mindset. Not defectors uh, in terms of their overall political beliefs, but defectors on the specific issues of 
what we call wokeness or social justice theory and intersectionality. Uh, I mean, there there is a a Twitter account, uh, and I know a lot of you aren't on Twitter, and I really do think that you should consider if you're interested in politics. It's a very um, it's a it can be a very useful tool. There's a, a spoof account called Titania uh, McGrath that's supposed to be that the, the description is activist, healer, radical, intersectionalist, poet, selfless and brave by my book. And I mean, some of the things that Titania and remember, this is a this is a spoof. It's a it's a spit. Uh, you know, it's a, a, a satire that Titania McGrath tweeted out yesterday. Things not to joke about. Women, gays, people of color, people of girth, communists, Jussie Smollett, Ilhan Omar, Greta Thunberg, Enya, vegans, male wombs, female penises, burkas, ecosexuality, the concept of a feminist caliphate. Thanks. This is funny, and this Twitter account has a tremendous amount of, of followers, and, and people really, it's really catching on, because it's, it's satire that feels like it's barely satire because this is just how nutty the left has gotten. You know, male wombs now. I mean, you had Castro running for president saying that we need taxpayer-funded abortions for transgender females, which means a biological male. Now, I, I can only tell you certain things in the realm of biology with absolute certainty, but I can tell you with absolute certainty that we do not need, under any circumstances, taxpayer funding for abortion procedures for people who are biologically male. I'm very sure of this. I, you know, as sure as I am of anything. But that's why the satire is so necessary, because there is a mass psychosis. There's a mass delusion now on the left. And they won't walk back from it. They won't walk away from it. They just keep doubling down. And one of the best ways to stop them from this lunacy is actually to make fun of them. And so Piers Morgan sees some of that. I, he had some good things to say. Team, I've got a special treat for you today. Get very excited about it. You don't even know what it is yet, but I'm telling you it's exciting. We have our friend Matt Best joining us now. He is a former Army Ranger, co-founder of Black Rifle Coffee, a wonderful sponsor of the Buck Saxton Show. And he has a fantastic new book out right now. Thank you for my service. Matt Best, author, warrior, American patriot extraordinaire, joins us now. Mr. Best, good to have you, sir. Thank you so much, Buck. You know, just trying to live that American dream and uh, love this country, so doing what I can. Absolutely. Tell, so tell me about Thank You for My Service, this book that's out now. What, what can we expect and what do we need to know? Yeah, so obviously the title is a little play in words from Thank You for Your Service. And first and foremost, you know, I was very happy and privileged to serve my country in the capacity that I did. And I'm very thankful for that opportunity. So that's really why I wanted to call the book this. And obviously I'm kind of a satirist and a comedian and like make a lot of irreverent content. So that's all enveloped in this kind of crazy story through war and transition and business. And I really wanted to tell an authentic approach to what my life was and uh, inside that kind of military community culture. So what are some of the things that you, you get into? I mean, you, do you talk about uh, Ranger selection? And, you know, tell me some things. Yeah, I, 
talk about everything, to be honest with you, but it's completely different from any other military book that I've ever read, um, read before, because you kind of ride shotgun with me the whole entire time, and I tell the story through my perspective and not necessarily like a dry <clears throat> educational tone. It's more of the emotional component that was associated with, you know, a suicide bomber blown up right in front of me and having to engage, you know, an ambush from, you know, 30, 30 meters away. So it's very in-depth and it's very, uh, it's, an, it's a crazy, crazy ride. I'm excited to get it out. Now, uh, how did you decide to join up, by the way? I mean, let's go back to the beginning a little bit here. We've never actually really talked about this, so... Really? Yeah, it comes from my two brothers were in the Marine Corps. My dad was a Marine. My great uncles were in World War II. So I come from a long history of service. And I just honestly love America. And I wanted to, to give a little bit of part of my service to hopefully uh, maintaining the, the amazing country that we have. So I've always been a patriot. So but so you're you got a lot of Marines in the family. How do you how do you end up going army and then going going to the Rangers that route? I was smart. You know, I'm kidding. <laughs> I love love all the Marines. Uh you know, I'd watched Black Hawk Down as a kid, and I really, really thought the Rangers were the coolest thing ever. And so I set my dreams on that and fortunately made it through the pipeline. What was the hardest What was the hardest part of that, just of the training? Pro- I mean, I've see, I've read uh, there's no shortage, as you may know, of uh, Navy SEAL books where I get to hear a lot about the cold water and the push-ups and all that very hard stuff that I would never be able to do. But I actually have never read a book where they talked about uh, being a ranger and, and that process. I'm just wondering, what was the hardest part of it? Yeah, I'd say uh, RIP, or now known as RASP, which is the selection program for becoming a 75th Ranger, uh, is hyper-challenging, right? Because they want you to quit. They don't want you to make it through, and they have an attrition rate that they have to meet. So you're almost in a competition with your peers, and a lot of those peers are insanely athletically talented and motivated guys. Um, And I have a story in this book about Ranger School, and I got a flesh-eating bacteria, which was absolutely miserable. Wait, What? Yeah, I got something called bullus infotigo, and it, it, it's prevalent in kids and people with bad hygiene or health, but because we weren't showering in, in the swamps for weeks, um, yeah, I was just eating away at my skin, and I almost got kicked out of ranger school as a medical drop because it was so bad. How do they cure? That sounds messed up. How do they cure that? You have to read the book, Buck. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> uh, through through, through a, lot, a lot of medicine. Uh, yeah, I, I got very fortunate that someone, I got misdiagnosed and someone, someone helped me out. So it was very lucky. And then your, your deployments. I mean, I know, I know you, were, you were in Iraq. Uh, how many and what years? I did four to Iraq and one to Afghanistan as a ranger. And then I don't know how many countless other ones as a contractor. I spent about three years on the ground as a contractor. So, but my, about my deployments were about 2005 to 2008. So right during the uh, heightened insurgency and then Ramadi and all that stuff. So we were doing pretty much all direct action raids. And what was the, of, of all the places you went, what was the single locale that you felt, wow, this is, uh, this is a war? The most, I'd say, I'd say too. When I was in Ramadi, um, you know, we lost a couple guys out there and got a lot injured. And then in Balad in 2008, and I go in depth about some of those stories because we were getting in gunfights nearly every night. But thankfully, I was with far more badass individuals than me, and we did a really good job at uh, staying safe within reason and and taking out a lot of uh, people that don't deserve to be around anymore. And do you do you talk at all about your? Because I know we have a lot of people in the military listen to this show, uh, current and and former military. Do you get into the the transition process? Because I think a lot of guys look at you. I mean, you know, you're, you're a modest fellow, but you've got like 
a bajillion YouTube views of videos that you guys do. You've also started a very successful brand. They're a sponsor here on the show, Black Rifle Coffee. Do you talk about that transition process or do you really just focus on the military component of your life? No, not at all. You know, I think it, to, to make a book reference, uh, the military aspect of my life was just, you know, essentially one chapter in, in my life. And so I definitely write a lot about that, but I go heavily in depth about you know, pretty much being a depressed alcoholic when I got out of the military. And if it wasn't for some very close friends, pretty much saving my life and getting my feet under me again, um, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And so I absolutely talk about how, you know, I kind of want to change the narrative for the veteran community that I don't want the civilians to look at us that we can't be successful because we went to war. I think we can be successful because we went to war. What was the turning point for you? And by the way, guys, we're speaking to Matt Best. He's a co-founder of Black Rifle Coffee, former Army Ranger, and his book, Thank you for my service is out right now. Uh, when did you realize that you could be an entrepreneur and also a, a media personality? I would say when it first started um, on YouTube, you know, I just wanted to make a few of my friends laugh. And I kind of have this macabre, dark sense of humor. And immediately I saw the reception was so well because other people thought like that. But, you know, given today's kind of climate and PC culture, they couldn't um, vent creatively and or with those stories and so that platform has really given me purpose and motivation to continue it and share my stories and share my experiences so i hope if you know a young 20 something year old kid getting out of the military he sees that there's hope for himself he can go be an entrepreneur he can chase his dreams he can be successful and he doesn't have to define his life about just his service i mean they should always be thankful for it but you can go on and do other epic things in life Matt Best, everybody, go check out the book. Thank you for my service. I'm going to pick up a copy. I'm going to read it, too. Matt, thank you for your service, sir. Appreciate it. Great to have you, and thanks for all you do for the show. Thank you so much, Buck. Appreciate it. All right, team, we'll be right back. Well, I'm moving, so that's that's a thing I got going for me, team. Man, I, I had to see recently they pulled a, a credit check on me for an apartment because... Um, I'm not rich, so I have to just keep renting in New York City for probably the rest of my life if I'm going to live there. And uh, I, I saw that I've lived in, I think it's 11. This will be the 11th place I have lived, the 11th different apartment I've lived in since I graduated from college. So those of you that like got out of school or didn't even go to school and just got a house and have been paying it off and living there, good job. Well done. Your economic sense is certainly uh, superior to mine in this regard. I've been throwing money away on rent now for, gosh, I've been working for 15 years straight and have never owned property. So there's that thing. And then there's moving, which I have to tell you, every as somebody who's moved a lot, I always think I'm going to get ahead of it. It's not going to be bad. It's uh, not going to be that tough this time. And there's just always something that comes up. You know, there's the, you don't have access to the loading dock when you need it. Or, you there, you know, the, the guy who comes in is like, hey, uh, I think we put like uh, a hole in the garage door. And I think your landlord's going to be upset. You're like, oh, my gosh. You know, there's always something that happens. They say, and I think by they, I mean, I read a study once online that after a serious illness and a divorce, those are number one and number two, that moving is the most stressful life event that most people uh, most people go through in the normal course of things, which sounds a little bit exaggerated. Then again, you also read these studies that say that 
if you're uh, if you're like a taxi driver, your your body goes through the same physical stress as a fighter pilot. Producer Mark, what do you think about that? <laughs> I don't. I feel like that's probably exaggerated. Although I don't although, think so. Moving sucks. Tra- traffic. Oh no, moving definitely sucks. I mean, but you know, I'm thinking about being a, a taxi driver. How that puts your body through the same. It doesn't say it's as risky as being a fighter pilot. It just says that your body goes through the same physical stressors because if you're doing like a 10 hour shift in traffic in a city. I think this was in, in New York City, taxi drivers, your body physiologically, it's like somebody who gets up in a fighter plane for, you know, an hour or something at a time. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. That might just be a total urban legend. But as producer Mark just said, moving does moving does suck. But wh- why is it? One thing is you just have so much stuff. And I, I love all these people that now they, they do this whole flex thing because that's what the kids say now. It's like, oh, why you got to flex on that? Right. Which means you're showing off how great you are cool you are well people are like book why don't you have more books when i move you know whenever i move and i move in somewhere it's like because i've had to move so many times and the one thing that is just always heavier than it's meant to be are books books are just heavy heavy duty man i mean i keep books that are meaningful to me or you know have some sentimental value uh, for the most part, other than that, I'm just I'm always like bailing out on it. Um, so, yeah, man, books, books. I just I try not. I've given away so many books to the Strand Bookstore in New York City at this point. I, I've rolled over there, literally rolled over there with rolling duffel bags just full of books. But that's the one thing that I, I can't get out of moving them. And the other thing is you realize is how much clothing you have. Producer Mark, what percentage of whatever you have in your closet and in your drawers do you think you really wear? I think I wear 25% of the clothing that I own. Maybe 15%? Yeah. But like you don't want to get rid of that other, call it 80, 85%, right? But Most of but, it's the if I lose weight clothes. Me too. I'm like, dude, when I'm in fighting shape, I got to keep this stuff for when I'm ready for it. But... Then I just wear the sweatpants a lot. You know, then I just rock out in the sweatpants. So, yeah. No, that's it's a thing. It's a real thing, folks. So, moving is very stressful. It is. But I'm looking forward to being up in NYC. You'll probably hear a reinvigorated Buckster up there because it's my hometown. My family's there. And uh, I'm now in the final countdown. T-minus. I should probably know how many days. What are we at? T-minus three days. T-minus Three days until the buck is back in N to the Y to the C. We should probably do some new radio stuff. And also, I mean, I got to go see some of my New York station folks. And I got to go drive around the state a bit because we're on a bunch of stations in New York. So I'm I'm working on all kinds of fun plans. It's because, as we used to say in the early days, the buck never stops. Ain't no party like a team buck party because a team buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Indeed, it is. It is time for Roll Call. Let's get to it. Uh, We have... Jim, if you want to be a part of it, by the way, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, as you no doubt have heard at this point, hopefully. 
Jim writes, Stacey Abrams' claim that voter fraud doesn't exist is ludicrous. Not to mention, imagine how racist the thought process of modern-day liberals actually is. They assume that minorities are unable to acquire an ID. I wonder why that is. Um, Just a thought, Shields High. Uh, Jim, appreciate you writing in. Thank you so much, sir. Jason, right? Buck, love a show as always, but you keep saying Stacey Abrams never won an election. This is incorrect. She was in the Georgia State House from 2007 to uh, uh, 2017, where she became the House Minority Leader. She is a powerful Democrat in the state, and she knows how to play dirty. What is true is she's never won a statewide election. I hope that trend stays true. Keep your shield high and keep up the good work. Uh, You are correct, sir. Thank you for the correction um yes indeed she is i should be saying or i should have been saying she has never won state or federal office um statewide office i mean or federal office so yeah she's in the georgia state house um yep there we go let's see sandra writes hi Hi, Sandra. I don't know if you're a real person or not, so all I get is a hi. Uh, Let's see. David writes, Hey, Buck, you probably are aware, but the podcast didn't go through today. I am not aware. Producer Mark, what the heck? Why isn't the podcast going through? Producer Mark. Because I'm terrible. I don't know. All right. I mean, we'll take that as an answer. It's not the answer we were looking for, but do you think maybe we can figure out a way to get the podcast up? I mean, I'll look into it. I'm, I'm pretty sure it is up. All right. This is like when people talk smack about the audio levels. Producer Mark doesn't back down. He doesn't play no games with that. I do my job correctly. That's right. So we'll have, we'll have to see who's going to get the code red. It might be Apple or something because maybe it's on their tech end. It's not always, not always on us, folks. Carla. Hey, Buck. Question about NYC. I was in Manhattan this weekend celebrating my birthday. I couldn't help but notice all the weed trucks and weed stores there. I tried to Google it, but is marijuana legal in NYC? It sparked my curiosity since coming from a small uh, town in Pennsylvania. I've never seen that before. I always enjoy my visits to the big city, and I'm slightly jealous you get to move back up there. Well, Carla, thank you. And I'm, I'm looking forward to being up in the big city, too. As for uh, the weed trucks, I believe that marijuana is currently decriminalized in New York City, but it is not certainly it is not federally legal, um, but there's very little federal enforcement at the low level. Bruce or Mark, does that sound right? Isn't marijuana decriminalized now like they won't arrest you for just simple possession? Yeah, you won't get a felony at least. Yeah, so you won't get in. You won't get in like big, big trouble for weed in New York, and I, I think that they're going to move toward. Look, I, I think that they should just probably move toward legalization and regulate it like alcohol and make people, you know, pay a lot of taxes on it and all that stuff. I think I think that's where the country is heading. I, I think there's basically no stomach in this country for locking people up for long periods of time for marijuana-related crimes. Let's get to my man, Dan, who writes the following. Hola, compadre. Great show yesterday. I really enjoyed your interview with Andy McCarthy and Anna Paulina. Anna Paulina's great. 
On the subject of race and people like Beta O'Rourke, as opposed to Beto, he's doing that on purpose, like a beta male, using it as a platform of self-loathing and increasing racial tensions, it makes me very sad to see and experience this unnecessary evil in our society. As a peace officer in Ground Zero, California, I see its increase. My white liberal neighbor the other day asked me about the border wall and my opinion. When I said I was in favor of it, he said, that's kind of racist, isn't it? Only in Cali can a white man tell a Mexican man that he is racist toward Mexicans. But I digress. On the subject of Greenland, Buck, I totally agree with you. It would also serve as a beta male colony to toughen them up. Shields high, compa. Shields high, Dan. Thank you so much for writing in. Always appreciate hearing from you, my friend. Good to have a bit of a chat here on air. Uh, Ian writes, hey, Buck, I really enjoy your impressions. Bernie is spot on. However, your Marianne Williamson sounds a lot like Nick Cage. Now I can't help but see her as a female Nick Cage, which makes listening to her at least somewhat entertaining. Uh, I'll work a little more on my Marianne Williamson. Because I think if we get together, the whole country, listen to me, child, if we get the whole country together and we get everyone to just hold hands and feel that burgeoning spirit, we can become one while also being many. You know what I'm saying? Uh, That's kind of, she kind of sounds like that. I I could work on it a little bit, but we're we're getting close. Jamie. Buck, have you ever thought about setting up an Amazon storefront and include books you recommend? I'm sure the cook, uh, the kickback is minimal, but you have a good fan base. Sounds like you ask, you get asked about books a lot. Um, Jamie, I did not even know this was a thing, so let me look into this, and it sounds like kind of a fun idea. Uh, I'm recommending books to you all. I could definitely do that. Oh, I got a book that I'm going to have to recommend to you all because I'm writing it. It's going to be out. I think it'll probably be out by Christmas. That's the plan. So, yeah, bye for the holidays. Dennis writes, listen to Friday's show. I heard you mention you may catch free solo this weekend. I hope you did. Highly recommend it. What an amazing display of sheer will, perseverance, and intestinal fortitude. A deep dive into the human condition. The story causes me cognitive dissonance, pursuing one's potential at such a high risk, a white knuckle ride. Dennis, I feel like we could copy and paste what you've written here into a review of the movie. You know, it seems like it's pretty spot on, my friend. Thank you so much for sending. I have not seen it yet. Producer Mark, have you seen Free Solo about the guy that climbs up the mountains without any stuff, just his hands? No, I have not. It's pre- I've seen some preview stuff for it. It's pretty wild. He's a free climber, so it's just his, his hands and his feet. He has no no picks, no ropes, no nothing, and he just goes up like sheer rock face for, you know, 800 feet or whatever. It's crazy. So, yeah, it's one of those things where you say, that's amazing, and you're like, what happens when one day something goes wrong? You know, I, I don't know how people do that stuff, but it is what it is. Jesse writes, Buck, the podcast audio of the protesters in Hong Kong uh, singing the U.S. national anthem gave me chills. I've been to Hong Kong many times. It's an amazing place with friendly people. You need to go there on your next trip. Also, Taiwan, shields high for Hong Kong. Jesse, uh, I, I really do wish I had gotten to Hong Kong when I was over in that part of the world. It was just not possible uh, given my schedule, but 
I really would like to check it out. I also would really enjoy going to Taiwan. So those are things that I would be into for sure. Um, although I don't know the next time I'll be able to get on a plane and go that far that long. I got I got some big plans coming up in NYC where I will be living as of this weekend, folks. Everybody's working for the weekend in NYC. That's terrible. I know. Don't change that. It's late in the show. I get a little punchy. I get a little, little, uh, you know, out of it. Rick writes, Buck, you mentioned a sponsor, and I thought you said CP Distillery, but I can't find it. Can you send me the correct name? Yes, uh, Rick, I absolutely can and will. Uh, So thank you so much for asking me, and I will send you the correct name that you are requesting. Um, So let's see here. We have a next one coming up. James writes, uh, Buck, as a person with a disability, pardon the spelling and grammar, not the best at that. But anywho, it's an honor for you to read your listeners' Facebook messages. You really take the time to read our thoughts. It's also an honor for you to do so because what you've done in the past as a CIA officer and a radio show host and on Fox News and willing to defend our great nation with your voice and show. Most definitely, we the listeners will get you out if you ever are kidnapped. No doubt about that and your crew. We have your back and most of us are also all gun owners. Uh, I own a semi-auto long rifle 22 just for home defense. And target practice, but I feel safe with my gun. Um, all right, man. Keep up the great work. Hope to meet you someday. Shields High, you're my favorite radio host. You're new to WGY. So from WGY, Shields High. Well, thank you, James. Please spread the word up there in the WGY area of upstate New York. I'm a native New Yorker, man. Not that many of us on the radio. I think the only other native New Yorker that really comes up is Sean Hannity. He's from Long Island. I don't know who else is a native New Yorker who's syndicated nationally. Obviously, there's a lot of New York-based radio hosts who are from New York, but I'm talking about the national level, so I don't know. I like to think I'm a little special. Alicia writes, Hey, Buck, I gave you a hard time about your support for red flag laws a week ago, so I was really glad to hear you change your mind about this horrific idea. I was mostly glad you changed your mind because it reaffirmed my impression of you that you were the kind of person who does real research and is willing to change their mind. There are too few people, especially in media, who are willing to dive deep and admit they made a mistake. I'm glad I can still call you. And, and don't worry, my former Special Forces husband knows I call you that and thinks it's funny. Thanks for being a thoughtful commentator. Well, thank you, Alicia. And tell the hubs thanks and respect. And thank you for your service, sir. Your wife is a very nice American. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, that's going to be it, team. Um, I'm going to just... Uh, Fade out here into the show tomorrow, which is going to be fantastic because our shows are always fantastic. Uh, like I said, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you want to send me your thoughts for roll call, Shields High.